So this evening, I want to sort of somewhat do a, a, a survey of sorts of the book of Ruth as we go through it, drawing out this particular theme as we've just noted, the theme of redemption as it is here in, the ch- in chapter number four. If you read chapter number four, those verses that we just read were some of the most pivotal in the entire little plot of Ruth as it talks about this notion of the kinsman redeemer, which we will explore in a little bit. The book of Ruth has been called by some the greatest love story that has ever been told as it depicts this incredible set of circumstances that surround the coming together in marriage of Ruth and Boaz. And in all the best ways, this book of Ruth endures as an incredible piece of literature in its own right, not just because it is divinely inspired, but if you just take it as a book of literary conquest, so to speak, it is a book that stands out. And indeed, some have said it's one of the most delightful pieces of writing that has ever been produced. And of course, we know that there's a lot more going on than meets the eye in the narrative of Ruth. And I think that's what makes this particular book so fascinating and so remarkable for a lot of reasons. And I think mainly because of its, ironically enough, the sparse references it has to the Lord. Besides chapter 1 verse 6 and chapter 4 verse 13, the narrator of Ruth very rarely in fact refers to any sort of direct activity or action on behalf of God. And indeed, many have Indicated or perhaps even said that this book itself is a book in which God remains largely hidden. He doesn't involve himself very overtly or very explicitly within the story as it unfolds. But you would be mistaken to think that this book is not a result of the hand of God at every single turn. That God is hidden ought not to surprise us too much considering the context in which Ruth takes place. It comes on the heels, of course, at least in your Bibles, but also historically, on the heels of that very brutal book known as the book of Judges. Go flip back a page and look at Judges chapter 21 verse 25, indeed the very last verse of that book. And note the state of affairs that the historian of Judges sort of describes the way in which all of man is now living. Notice Judges 21-25, he says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is indeed the very lawless and godless place in which Ruth takes place. A time in which, indeed, man was doing what was right in his own eyes. And if you read those awful last couple chapters of Judges in which the awful effects of sin and depravity are brought to the fore in that very little town of Bethlehem, we are very much ashamed, perhaps, to say that this is the history of the people of Israel. And yet... That is precisely where God decides to work an incredible miracle of sorts. A miracle known as the coming together of Ruth and Boaz. Indeed, that isn't often regarded as a miracle. But I think as we will see that this is a book that has divine features. Even as we already noted, it doesn't feature a lot of divine involvement. And in fact, if you just read the book of Ruth from beginning to end, it appears rather ordinary. 
An ordinary book describing ordinary people with life as usual taking place. And yet, this ordinary book is brimming, I would say, with extraordinary meaning and I would even say extraordinary hope. In chapter 1, look at that, chapter 1 of Ruth, verse 1, these first five verses sort of serve as a prologue or an introduction, so to speak, to the main action of the story. This, if you were doing sort of a stage play, this would be a narrator reading these words, sort of giving you the idea of the world into which you ought to be setting yourself up for. Notice verse 1, in the days when the judges ruled there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife was Naomi and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah and there he went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. A famine strikes the land of Israel, and it drives Elimelech and his wife to find a new home in the country of Moab, where eventually Elimelech himself loses his life, as the historian has just here noted. And so Naomi's two sons take these Moabite wives before they too pass away. And now we have this state of affairs where we have three widows, all of whom are childless, which might just be the most hopeless condition imaginable. As perhaps you know in these days, if there was no heir and no sort of male head of the home to protect and provide, it puts those in that state of affairs in a very desperate situation. And these desperate circumstances is exactly where Naomi now finds herself. And of course now she determines to return home. It's time to pack up and move into a new chapter of life. Now that it it is very much clear to her that this chapter in Moab is closing. All of the loss that she has experienced and all of the devastation now drives her to return home back to Bethlehem. Notice verse 15 though because... As she does, Ruth says, I'm going to go with you. Notice verse 15. Ruth says, or excuse me, Naomi says, and she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Ruth here does not follow her sister-in-law Orpah by going back to her homeland. Whereas Naomi is deciding to go back home to Bethlehem, it would be perhaps logical. That Ruth and Orpah would return to theirs, stay with their families in this new state of affairs in which they have found themselves. But instead, Ruth pledges herself to her mother-in-law, continuing alongside her as she says very lovingly, where you go, I will go. 
You cannot take me away from you, essentially. And Naomi realizes how determined and perhaps we could say how stubborn Ruth was in this. And so she lets her follow her. And eventually they make it to Bethlehem, of course, as we know. And I love how it's worded in chapter number two, where they make it back to Bethlehem. And it says that they happened to come across a certain field. Notice verse number two, or excuse me, notice chapter two, verse number one. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. I love how it's worded there, this sort of happenstance, a chance event that Ruth just happened to be gleaning in the back part of the field that Boaz owned for his own. Of course, there's nothing chance about this encounter. There's nothing happenstance about it. This, of course, is very much by divine design, I would declare. But as Naomi has here just divulged, Boaz is a relative of her husband, her late husband, Elimelech. And upon happening, again, happening to come upon this field, Ruth starts to gather after the reapers, left all the remainders and the leftovers in the field, these who were destitute, these who were needy and, and very much in desperate states, uh, they would, would come and, and take of the remainders. And such is when Boaz notices Ruth. Notice verse 4. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. He notices how Ruth has been so dogged and determined in her tasks. And, she's, and he soon learns Ruth's story from this young servant, telling him all about all that has transpired of this distant relative of his and how they have endured so much loss and so much heartache that has driven them here to this very state of affairs that they now find themselves in, gleaning from a field just to survive. Which prompts him to deal incredibly kindly with Ruth. Notice verse number 8. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one. But keep close to my young woman. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done. 
And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. There's grace In the eyes of this ruler of the land, Boaz, as he takes Ruth into his care, as he has already here provided for and protected her very much by the word of his power. No one's going to touch you. You're going to come into this field and you will glean at free will. And he even feeds her at his own table. Notice verse 14. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied. And she had some left over. No more starving. No more state of being destitute or desperate for meals or going hungry on the way. Because now they had a provider in her life. And he even orchestrates, I love how he does so, in verses 15 and 16, extra bundles of grain for her to glean. Notice, when she arose to glean, verse 15, Boaz instructed his young men saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So take out a little bit. Leave a little bit extra behind for her to gather provision over and above measure for this one that he doesn't owe anything to. One of the most fascinating themes throughout the book of Ruth is that Boaz is treating this one that he doesn't really owe anything to with an abundance of favor and grace. He goes above and beyond what he is obligated to do in order to provide for this one Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi. At the end of the day, verse 19 of chapter 2, Ruth is finally able to tell Naomi about all of the things that have happened. (laughs) And there's a lot. There's a lot that's transpired in this day as she's happened to come across this field and happened to find favor with this man who owns the field named Boaz. Of course, notice what she says. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with with his young women, lest lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. So she is encouraging Ruth to, yes, foster this relationship with Boaz. As she has just revealed that Boaz is more than just a distant relative, a kin from way down the line. As she has here said, she, he, excuse me, Boaz is one of our redeemers. Which is a fascinating sort of uh, Institute that they had in these days known as the kinsman redeemer. This one known as the kinsman redeemer was one who was lawfully able to rescue those who were barren or caught in a state of brokenness. You can find out more about it by reading Leviticus chapter 25 as 
The law details how the next of kin can come and aid a needy relative, perhaps a brother, to come to the aid of his widowed sister-in-law. The goal of this, right, gave the closest male relative the prerogative to marry the nearest widow and to meet that widow's needs by continuing the family line and acquiring all of the property and keeping it within the family name. We find this theme popping up in several places in Scripture. Mostly, most notably in Jeremiah 32 with the purchase of land by the prophet in the days of the Babylonian invasion. But here, of course, it describes the situation of Naomi and Ruth. Both childless widows. Both ones who are in a state of, yes, desperation and brokenness and barrenness. And Naomi has already recognized back in chapter 1, verse 11 and 12, that she is beyond childbearing years. And so she encourages Ruth to continue. Yes, go, be faithful, do as this one has commanded you, has invited you to do. And she encourages her to make herself known to Boaz. Notice chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. So a a couple months go by, as we have just read in verse 23, that she's been gleaning to the end of all these harvests. And notice verse number 1 of chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? She is, Naomi, very concerned with her daughter-in-law and how she's going to be taken care of in all of her days and all of her future days. And she continues, it's not Boaz, our relative, with those with whose young women you, you were. See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. And he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. Here, these are perhaps some very strange instructions. And we're not quite sure perhaps what at first she might be encouraging Ruth to do. Of course, though, if you just sort of break it down, what Naomi is, is instructing Ruth to do is find out where Boaz sleeps and wait to the end of the day when he is dead dog tired and he's just finished his meal and he wants to just go to bed, hit the hay and position yourself at the foot of his bed and uncover his feet. Because what's going to happen? His feet are going to get cold. He's going to get restless. He's going to start tossing. He's going to start turning. And then he's going to notice you at the end, at the foot of his bed. And as she says, he will tell you what to do. It'll be very plain. It will be very obvious, perhaps. And perhaps she knows, and perhaps she has noticed how Boaz has noticed Ruth and how Ruth has noticed Boaz. And so she's giving them a little prodding along the way. And all of that sounds a little... More than a little forward and more than perhaps a little awkward. But Ruth, as she says here, I will do all that you say. A a statement of faith and a statement of, yes, indeed, humility towards Naomi's wisdom. And she does all that Naomi has said for her to do. Notice verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over 
And behold, a woman lay at his feet, and he said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord. This is another one of those instances where there's some cultural, and I would even say ancient oddities that are at work. When she is basically encouraging him to spread his wings, which is essentially spread your garment over me. This is essentially her suggestion to Boaz, you should propose to me. (laughs) Again, a very forward, perhaps, uh, meet cute, if you will, of these two. But literally, she is asking him, let's, let's make this official, so to speak. And he responds to this forwardness of this proposal that has just taken place with even more grace. Notice, and he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first. And that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. He tells her, certainly. I've seen how worthy you are. I've seen you. I've noticed you. I've kept my eye on you. The only hiccup in this whole ordeal, in this whole sort of proposal, is that there's another kinsman. There's another kinsman who has first dibs, so to speak, and he's nearer a redeemer than I am. So he decides, don't worry, I'll settle this in the morning. I will do all that I need to do to get this all worked out so we can get this whole sort of situation put to rest. So he does just as he said as he would as we find ourselves in chapter number one again. He sits himself at the gates of the city where he's awaiting this kinsman redeemer who would come into the gate so he can have this discussion with him. Notice again verse one of chapter four. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there and behold the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. And so Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. So they have this meeting here, this, the redeemer as he's referred to, which I think is actually pretty fascinating. The fact that this next one who is next in line, perhaps to take the hand of Ruth and and be her savior, so to speak, is never given a name. In fact, in verses 1 and 3 and 6 and 8 of chapter 4, he's always only referred to as the Redeemer, which I think is not insignificant. In fact, by all accounts, he was somewhat of an absent Redeemer, this one who had the prerogative, who had the obligation, we might even say, as the next closest kinsman to Ruth and Naomi, and he's done nothing with it up to this point. He perhaps knew But he did nothing to alleviate the suffering and the heartache of Ruth and Naomi. He's been absent. He's been inactive the entire time. Not going out of his way to support these needy relatives of his. He's kind of just there. 
And so it is that it just so happens that upon this day, as Boaz is waiting, this redeemer makes his way into the city. And they promptly sit down, as we've already read, and they have this, this interesting little meeting that transpires with all of the city officials. Notice verse 2. So Boaz took the ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. And so they sat down. And then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. And so I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know. For there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. There's an interesting sort of way in which Boaz proceeds through this proposal. He's trying to get an answer out of this guy. He's trying to get what he wants, which is the hand of Ruth. But he can't because of the law. He has to get this guy to renege his deal, to, to, uh, to go back on his right as the kinsman redeemer here and give it all up. So what does he do? He approaches him by giving him the best sort of business deal he could imagine. There's this land here. You can get all of this land. It sounds like a really good deal. And as soon as the guy agrees to this part of the deal, he says, there's a catch. Notice verse 5. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field, by the way, oh, by the way, there's something else you might want to know. The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also require Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. A shrewd little action of Boaz. As he talks about the land, gets him excited about that, but it includes, yes, there's a catch. You have to have a marriage proposal along with the property. To which this kinsman hears this minor detail, so to speak, and bows out. He bails. says, no, I cannot fulfill the rights of the kinsman redeemer for Naomi and Ruth. And so he gives it up to Boaz, who here promptly settles the matter in front of everyone, legally and lawfully and publicly. Notice verse 7. Now, this was the custom in the former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all of the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon. And Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Basically saying, it's official. This would be as if you were doing something, carrying out a business deal in front of a notary public. This is official business that cannot go be gone back on. And he takes... Ruth as his wife. And he soon gives her a son. Notice verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. 
Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be known, be renowned, excuse me, in Israel. And he shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. So ends this tale. A tale as old as time, so to speak. And all of these events that have transpired, that they just so happened, and they just so happened, of course, all along the way, there has been a divine hidden hand guiding it along. Keeping this story going, this greatest love story that has ever been told. But it's not just about Ruth and Boaz. It's not just about their relationship and them coming together in one, in one accord. It's meant to show us, I think, of course, also the love that Christ has for us. You know, the way in which this book ends is incredibly fascinating. It ends with a genealogy. Notice verse 18. Now here, or excuse me, now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amminadab. And Amminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. And Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. If you ever want to know what the Bible is trying to tell us through a certain piece of writing, oftentimes there will be something that's often repeated. Or there's something that appears here that stands out of the whole entire narrative. And because it stands out so greatly, it's meant to be a flashing neon sign to pay attention to this. The writers in these days couldn't bold anything. And they couldn't draw arrows, perhaps, to what they wanted you to focus on. But if you could, you could imagine there's a lot of red arrows going towards these verses. They're meant for us to see how all of this is ushering us into the age of kings. As you turn the page and Samuel begins, and the age of kings is there upon us. But of course also it foreshadows the great king who had come from the line of promise that is the line of David. And it connects us right into the family line of the Messiah himself as it's outlined in Matthew chapter 1. With Ruth being mentioned there as one of the great grandmothers of the Messiah. That's not a small detail to pass over. As Ruth here, a Moabite widower, one who is not part of the covenant family of God, not part of those who were chosen by God, has now been included into the line of the great king, the Messiah himself. I think in a token of what would one day come through Jesus. Yes, when all of those who don't belong perhaps are included in the family of God. And whereas Boaz becomes the great kinsman redeemer for Ruth and Naomi, he could only do so for that family. And what the great king would one day do, that is Christ, 
He would be the kinsman redeemer for the entire world. As God himself would take on flesh so that he too could be the nearest redeemer for sinners all across this earth. As he takes that place, he becomes like us so that he can rescue us and be in our place of need and hurt. And just as Boaz was not obligated to do what he did for Ruth, neither was Christ. Christ was not obligated to do anything that he did. He did so because of one great motive. For God so loved the world. And because of that, he became the redeemer of the world. He gave himself to the world. Just as Boaz here gives of himself to this one that he owes nothing. So to Christ gives of himself in the greatest degree possible by taking our place of death in order to work out what? Our redemption. He does all the work. Notice as Boaz says to Ruth in chapter 3, don't worry about it, I will settle it in the morning. I will work out everything. I'll work out every last detail. And the same is true for you and I here tonight. Our kinsman redeemer has worked out everything for our redemption. Nothing is left undone. Nothing is left untouched. Everything is finished, as he says. And not because he had to, but because he wanted to. And not because he was obligated to, but because he loved us so much. This little story is imprinted with the fingerprints of God's hand at every single step of the way. And oftentimes I think our lives are very much like Ruth's. We cannot always see what God is doing, but he is doing something. Working out something with perfect ends. That we often don't recognize, but they are always being worked out. And here Ruth was perhaps unaware of what was being worked out. But what God was working out was the divine line of promise. The line through whom the Savior of the world would come. And that's what God is always doing. Working out our perfect redemption in his perfect timing. This is our kinsman redeemer. And he has saved us of his own accord. And he has come and done for us what we could never do for ourselves. May God be praised. Let us bow our heads and close our eyes as we close our service this evening.